This issue, we are going to talk about war. War and Bitcoin. How war and Bitcoin are related. We're going to talk CBDCs and other interesting topics and see what's going on in the world of BlackRock. So one thing that may be of interest, I've been asked this before, in this channel, in my Instagram here, why do I talk about, why do I bring these two topics together, war and Bitcoin? They seem so disparate. They seem unrelated, perhaps. And it's a great question. And what I'm endeavoring to do in this podcast is, is to explain and show how they're very much related, how they connect with each other, impact each other and are very important to you, whether you're interested in war or not. War and what our nation is involved in, which is perpetual war, seeking out war at all times, that this has a direct impact on your interest in Bitcoin, your interest in preserving generational wealth, has so many repercussions. And so uh, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. As a career military officer, combat arms officer, an Iraq war vet with two tours to Iraq, one of them during the surge in Iraq where I worked directly for uh, Lieutenant General Ray Odierno, who is the commander of Multinational Corps Iraq, um, I, I come at Bitcoin from a unique perspective, from a unique lens. I'm able to see important linkages between warfare and Bitcoin and how they impact all of us and important linkages that may otherwise not be seen from someone who doesn't have a military background. So this can be very helpful at times. It can be helpful to understand and probe the Bitcoin space, both understanding it now and in the future where it may go and very importantly in that regard, how it may go as it relates to the state and how the state is going to deal with or respond to or react to Bitcoin. The first thing we have to understand is that wars are fought primarily for money because of monetary reasons. And when we say, when I say money, I'm simultaneously also meaning power because these two go hand in glove. You don't have power without money. And having money gives you power. This is exponentially so in the nation-state or in the kingdom realm. And so war has become, over time, wildly profitable. It's always been profitable to a degree. Uh, winning a war, even back in ancient times, has given you more power than you had, etc. It also uh, gives you more problems... Uh, certainly, 
But the development in the modern age is that war, if you are the victor, if even if you're not the victor, but we'd have to unpack and explain that a little bit more, but if you're the victor, war has become wildly, incredibly profitable on a number of different levels. It's become profitable uh, for those who peddle war and who are connected to the military-industrial complex. And in the large, in the aggregate, the complex prospers mightily, even as the nation might not. And this has been the development over time, but we're in this phase of history where war, regardless of the reasons, the causes belli, the reasons for going to war, uh, it's a very profitable pursuit. And this is especially so because our nation realized, starting in the First World War and then galvanizing in the Second World War, that, that great wars, global wars, expansive wars could be financed by cheap fiat money created ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. Unicorn money created out of nothing, with nothing to back it. The, this kind of money it was very uh, accommodating and conducive to the bankrolling of wars. And in this regard, if we think about that, this is the point of the state becoming godlike. Uh, if you think of a god concept, a, a god who creates out of nothing, true creation, not creating out of existing materials, but creating out of nothing. Well, this is what the state has become at this point. A, a god, little g, if you will, creating money at will out of nothing. Now, we can look at the quality of the creation. We can look at the quality, the righteousness of the so-called god by looking at their creation and the, the, the God of the state, it creates out of nothing currency, fiat currency, but it's trash. It works for a time. It works for the state's purposes quite well and for the individuals within that government quite well. But the fiat currency, its creation is absolute trash and continues to devalue every step of its, of its existence. But wars are profitable. Our nation, our war for American independence, was fought because in large portion, King George had been fighting on the continent and, and worldwide, I mentioned this before, seven years war. And then he was broke and he sought to replenish his treasury by taxing the colonies, and I've covered this before, I won't replow that terrain. We can pick other wars, just look at them, look at the proxy wars that we fought throughout the 1960s through the 1980s with the Soviet Union, attempting to pit our economy against theirs to bring them to economic financial culmination. And you can say, oh, well the wall came down in Berlin, it worked, it worked, the Soviet Union collapsed. Well, yes, myopically, you could say it worked. Uh, it may have collapsed of its own inertia without our interference, 
It may have collapsed even faster without our interventions worldwide. But again, you say, oh, it worked. But at what price? We won the Cold War, whatever that means. But what it means, for sure, was an ex exponential expansion of NATO, of our defense budget, of our national debt, which, oh, by the way, as I speak, is now at $32.3 trillion in climbing. And for you, if you're a taxpayer, your share of that is $251,000. But of course, we'll never have to worry about uh, that chicken. That chicken will never come home to roost, will it? That can just keep expanding, keep expanding. We'll keep um, creating ex nihilo unicorn money, trash fiat currency, and there will never be any repercussions of that monstrosity national debt, correct? We could look at the Gulf War, the first Gulf War with Iraq and the, the follow-on invasion of Iraq, 20-year occupation afterwards, and certainly strategic access in the Middle East uh, was in play there. Uh, no weapons of mass destruction, as you're aware. You know, our, our government officials, the Secretary of State, the previous four-star General Colin Powell, just trust me, speaking and testifying before the UN Security Council. Trust me, I've seen the proof. Saddam Hussein, weapons of mass destruction. He is colluding with Al-Qaeda, also a lie. Just trust us, trust me. But strategic access in the Middle East, an expansion of power, which is money, money control. But why would we need strategic influence and access in that part of the world? And is strategic access and influence in a certain part of the world, is that a morally just cause for invading a sovereign nation, for going to war? Well, part of that certainly was to secure the Middle Eastern oil fields. You, you recall Kuwait, Kuwaiti oil fields threatened by Saddam Hussein uh, coming down to invade Kuwait. And I've dealt with that in a previous issue, what that was all about. Uh, it's not as simple as what you were taught. Saudi Arabia, very nervous about their oil fields in, in, in a aggressive Iraq. Freedom of navigation of oil tankers down there in that area in the Straits. And so wars are fought primarily for money, which is to say power. And the nation state, our state, Big S, has been exponentially empowered by uh, using this self-given power of creating money out of nothing, ex nihilo, which is the antithesis, the antithesis of the Bitcoin protocol. Bitcoin cannot be created out of nothing. Bitcoin has an upper ceiling, an upper limit. There will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin, never anymore. There's only so many Bitcoin that can be mined every 10 minutes. And about every four years, that amount is cut in half in the event called the halving. It's absolutely the diametric opposite of the fiat currency protocol. And so these things are related. And as such, as Bitcoin achieves greater and greater and greater market cap, 
we can expect and have to expect, I look at it militarily, we can expect that the state will start taking notice of it. And of course it already has right now. It's taking notice of Bitcoin and all other cryptocurrencies in its ignorance. It lumps all cryptocurrencies together and doesn't see the singular distinction of Bitcoin as different from other altcoins or what, what are sometimes called crap coins. Um, but the state will begin taking notice of it, looking at Bitcoin as a financial or monetary insurgent, seeing it as a threat, and not something that, that it can coexist with. We find this with, with gods, with, with human gods, with self-made gods, uh, Caesars. They cannot tolerate anything or anyone that they deem is a threat to the throne. They must reign supreme as God with no competitors. And so the national state, the national God, is essentially condemned, is essentially inevitably going to view Bitcoin as a competitor to the fiat monetary system, which is the lifeblood of the state. And in 1961, General Eisenhower, World War II hero, who became president then, as he left office in 1961, he warned the nation, he warned you and I, of the greatest threat out there, of the greatest threat to the more pure ideas and concepts, the liberating freedom ideas of the United States of our Constitution. And he says the greatest threat was a rapidly expanding monster, the military-industrial complex. He saw this thing continue to grow. It was birthed, I would argue, in World War I, was its initial conception. And then the birth was in World War II in a quick uh, growth from that point on. And it now inordinately influences Washington and indeed is Washington. The military-industrial complex monster has an insatiable appetite. It spares no outsider that seeks to cage it, curtail it, slow it down, whether that's a politician or whether that's an alternative monetary system such as Bitcoin. And after 20 years fighting and occupying Afghanistan and Iraq, and other places throughout the world in this global war on terror, not a war on a nation or an, an enemy entity that could sign the documents of surrender after we've won. No, this is a war on a noun, just a very general noun, terror. It's like the war on crime, the war on, uh, on disease. No, this is the war on terror, and when you declare war on a noun, uh, which is ubiquitous and... and you can find it all throughout history, well, that makes it real easy to perpetuate that war then, which is wonderful. It works really well when you're the state and you want to keep expanding a defense budget. You want to keep expanding powers over even your own citizens. We're talking the Patriot Act, surveillance, establish a Department of Homeland Security. How well is that working? Because we have an incredible invasion on the southern border. Fentanyl is pouring in through the southern border. Tragically, many of you listening to me 
probably know one or more people who've overdosed from fentanyl coming in from Chinese precursors, chemical precursors, which are brought into Mexico. And then that's brought forward into the United States. This fentanyl epidemic that we have, which has destroyed, killed far more folks than COVID has in the United States. These numbers are widely accessible, very easily found. But after 20 years of fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq and occupying their nations, and then leaving so pathetically, um, you would expect that our national defense budget would have quickly contracted and shrunk because the threat's over, right? The war is over. The occupation is over. So shouldn't the defense budget commensurately contract? We can spend this money at home with the problems we have here. You'd be wrong. You would be wrong. The defense budget has not shrunk at all. It's expanded. Why is that? Why is the defense budget not in any way expanded, but continue to expand? after 20 years of occupation has ended and essentially no one on the left side of the aisle or the right side of the aisle, the blue or the red, essentially none of these career politicians focused on themselves, bought and sold by donors, bought and sold by lobbyist groups, you will be hard-pressed to even find one fighting tenaciously to shrink the military budget because they're fighting an uphill battle. They won't succeed. There's no one that advocates for that because war is profitable. This military-industrial complex I call the political military-industrial complex because it has very successfully um, fused its grotesque Frankenstein parts into this creature that includes the political system as well. It's very much integrated into this political, military, industrial complex. Well, when you create fiat currency out of nothing as a, as a god, things collapse. You can't control it. Uh, these planners think that they're the smartest people in the room. They think that they know how to control the economy, plan the economy, and make it do its will, and they continue to fail. So we have the 2008 financial collapse. And because of that, whoever Satoshi Nakamoto was, whether one person, whether a group of people, whoever Satoshi Nakamoto was in 2008, incensed, enraged at the collapse, uh, and this was right at the time of the Lehman Brothers collapse. We're going to call him a he, just to make it simple. We don't know who he was. But he declared war on the fiat currency system, the very lifeblood of the Washington war machine. And now this monster is beginning to take notice. Because Bitcoin exists outside of. It's a system outside of the fiat currency space. If we used, if we had a hard money, 
a money that was linked to something, some protocol of intrinsic value that was limited in its production, that it was rare. In other words, you could say, you know, one possible system could be a gold-backed dollar, if this existed anymore. But if we used a hard money, you couldn't bankroll endless wars. You would have a very, very difficult time bankrolling wars. Matter of fact, you'd have to go to Congress, you'd have to go to the American people and debate the merits of going to war. Because you couldn't just easily bankroll it by creating unicorn money out of nothing. But we don't have hard money. We have a monetary system which makes war so easy. And so now our plutocrats are pushing us into unnecessary conflict now with a nuclear power. Like they're absolutely committed to upping the ante and going to war with Russia. We suffer from central planners who think they're smarter than everyone else, but not only can't they adequately plan our economy, reference the depression, the recessions that we have, but in their power lust, they neither limit themselves to morally just wars, but those that they do get us involved in, they can't even win. They can't even win. They can't achieve their objectives that they set for these, what I'll say, immoral, unrighteous wars that they just push our country into. They can't even win them. When I was in Iraq, I recall being there and seeing endlessly, year after year, the goalposts being changed. Our objectives for the war, our objectives even in the smaller campaigns, even in the smaller areas of operations that I served in, the goalposts always changed. Because we couldn't achieve success, we couldn't run the pigskin through the goalposts, so we had to keep changing the definitions, we had to keep changing the, the measures of success. We haven't won a war since the Second World War. Haven't won a war. And no, I don't call the 100-hour Gulf War a war. How misappropriately named. That wasn't a war. Sure wasn't resolved at the end of that. But we haven't won anything since World War II. But what we have done is empower the political, military, industrial complex. We have made a lot of people rich. Incredibly rich. Uh, win, lose, or draw, uh, the peddlers of warfare are recompensed well. Matter of fact, you look at our the military portion of the military-industrial complex. In 1943, in World War II, we had seven four-star generals presiding over a force of about 12.2 million service members. Seven four-star generals. This is the last time we actually won a war. And then you fast forward to today. What do we have? What do we have today? We had seven four-stars then winning a war. Today we have 44. 44 four-star general officers for a force of not 12 million service members, but about 1.1 million service members 
and we haven't won a war any time lately. Any time lately. So you see, it's so profitable. It's pr so profitable. You know, 44 four-stars, really nice retirement. Really nice retirement. And um, the, the ability then to transition and graduate as a civilian into the uh, industrial portion of the military-industrial complex so they can continue expanding their bank accounts with trash fiat currency that continues to devalue. But when you have a hell of a lot of it, uh, you, can, you can weather devaluation more than the common American. See, the lay American, anyone outside of the complex. Yeah, so, you know, you get yours. You, you know, it's all about just getting yours, not about understanding the Constitution as, as an officer. It's not about that. It's not about thinking for yourself and really thinking about, what the hell are we doing? Is this morally just? Is this constitutional? Is this righteous? Is this right? Does this actually, this 20-year war, for example, does this actually secure the nation, defend it? Or are we doing something very immoral, very unrighteous? Ah, but you know, I'll be a combat vet. I'll, I'll get promoted. I'll get to the next level. So I just turn a blind eye. It's not for me to think about these things. It's for me to be faithful, to be apolitical, apolitical, and continue to, to follow my orders. But of course, if something in my face immoral occurs, of course I won't allow that. But I have no problem being part of the machine. Being part of the machine because I'm going to be able to get mine. And this is the rationalization. This is the rationalization. I'm going to you know, another way of thinking about it is, I've heard folks say, well, if I leave, the bad guys win. I'm going to try to work from within. See, sadly, it doesn't work. And history shows us that when the rot is so prolific, when the rot in the tree is so bad, uh, working from within is impossible. And it, it doesn't work. It never works. What actually works is you just get more brainwashed. You just get more expert at rationalizing what you're doing and what you're enabling and what you're intentionally determining to be a part of. That's what occurs. You don't heal the rot in the tree. So 44 four-star generals, and, and I won't give you the numbers, how many three-stars then, how many two-stars, how many one-stars, because it's a pyramid, it, it continues growing exponentially beyond there. You get the picture. We're wildly top-heavy and wildly underperforming in both regards, but a lot of people are getting paid. And so these genius central planners, they can't plan the economy, and they can't win wars. Even the immoral wars that they get us into, they can't win them. But you may or may not be aware that the fifth tenet, the fifth pillar of the Communist Manifesto, is the creation of a central bank. You have to have a central bank. 
Authorities have to control money. They have to control the currency in the state. They have to take control over this. They seek to control the economy, the financial interactions of its people, in fact, their very lives. And it's a form of enslavement by the elite to pursue their own self-enrichment. And Bitcoin cannot be controlled by any central bank, any global bank, any dictator, any tyrant, any government. It exists outside of that space. And so it will be seen as a threat. As it grows, as people continue to see the worth of Bitcoin, and that continues even to this last week, I don't know if you've seen the interview with Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock. Just this week, he used to ridicule and mock Bitcoin. This week, he, he, he is interviewed extolling the virtues of Bitcoin, explaining how amazing it is. Here is a short clip from Fox Business News interviewing Larry Fink. I was skeptical because the early users were it was heavily used for let's say illicit activities, um, and I think as it became more accessible, and also I do believe the role of crypto is um, it is it, it it's digitizing gold in many ways. It's a it's a instead of investing in gold as a hedge against inflation, a hedge against. The, uh, the onerous problems of any one country, or or the or the devaluation of your currency, whatever country you're in. Um, let's be clear: Bitcoin is an international asset. It's not based on any one currency, and so it 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 can represent an asset that people can play as an alternative. I would call the the foundation of BlackRock is about hope. And so I'll have more to say on that in a later podcast, but more and more folks are seeing the value of Bitcoin. And so Bitcoin is going to continue to hit the radar screen then of the state, and the state's going to take notice and is going to, and has already started, reacting to it. And we're going to watch how it responds to the emergence of uh, the acceptance, the gaining popularity and acceptance of Bitcoin. And so we will see if Larry Fink and all of the other uh, financial investment firms with their spot Bitcoin filings, if they eventually get approved. We'll see what the SEC and Gary Gensler finally do in their rulings, whether they allow these uh, CEOs, these investment firms who are realizing the profit potential, is how they're seeing it, of Bitcoin. They're realizing this and want to get in on the action. We'll see what the state does in response to that. In the meantime, I will continue analyzing Bitcoin and the Bitcoin space vis-a-vis the state from a military perspective, looking at it uh, in terms of of insurgency and counterinsurgency, based upon my experience of seeing insurgency and counterinsurgency play out in Iraq, in in the global war on terror. And so I hope you find this episode Uh, somewhat thought-provoking and informative, and I would ask you to, if you're so inclined, to like the podcast, to follow it, and to share it with others who need to 
hear the message. You need to hear the Bitcoin signal. This is Colonel Stebbins signing off.